G'day everybody, Duncan Armstrong here. Um, A little bit of sad news to begin this podcast. I spoke to Fran and Wayne Smith uh, just a couple of months ago for the Podium podcast, which you're about to hear. But the sad news between recording and now, Wayne has passed away. Wayne Smith was a fantastic journo for many, many years. I was speaking to my coach Laurie Lawrence just this week about the sad news of Wayne's passing and he made the comment that Wayne actually was so passionate about his riding in rugby and riding for swimming and Laurie was a wallaby back in the day in the 60s that Wayne actually covered him as a wallaby in rugby all the way through his coaching career all the way through to gold with with both John Seaman and myself, Tracy Wickham, Steve Holland and Wayne was there every step of the way so he has definitely affected me. I remember being on trips with him in the in the 80s and uh, didn't always get on with Wayne. I wasn't always happy with what he wrote about me, but he had a job to do and he was unflinching in it. And sometimes um, I felt like I was a victim of Wayne's writing sometimes. So we had a few years off in terms of speaking to each other a couple of times, but he was always fair and he was always enthusiastic. And uh, he was a great man and a great journalist. So... Uh, we're going to miss Wayne and we just wish his family all the very, very best in going forward. It must have been a great shock, uh, a sudden heart attack for the family. So our hearts go out to the family and we bless them. Uh, there's a send-off for Wayne coming up in Ballymore in the next couple of weeks, which will be a fantastic way to celebrate a life in media as a great journalist, Wayne Smith. Rest in peace. Welcome to the countdown of the 2032 Olympic and Paralympic Games on the Sunshine Coast. We are celebrating 10 years to go until the start of the Games in Brisbane. As we mark this exciting milestone, it's time to reflect on the power of sport to bring people together and create meaningful change. Over the next decade, we'll be witnessing the transformation of our region as it prepares to host some of the world's greatest athletes. Finally. (laughs) But it's not just about the Games themselves. It's about the opportunities and legacies that come with it. So join us as we embark on the journey and explore the impact that the 2032 Olympic and Paralympic Games will have on the Sunshine Coast. This is The Podium Podcast with your two hosts and I should mention a combined sports journalism career spanning over 65 years, Wayne Smith and Francis Collins. Welcome to the second episode of The Podium and someone who knows The Podium well, Olympic gold medalist, world record holder and he joins us here today as the Deputy Chair of Sunshine Coast 2032, the incredible Duncan Armstrong. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Fran. It's lovely to see you. Lovely to see you too, Wayne. How are you? Not as much as Fran, but it is lovely to see you. Obviously, we'll build up to your 200 freestyle in, in Seoul, but... Why don't you, as, as part of the slow burn, hmm. take us through what got you started on the Olympic journey uh, in Rockhampton, was it not? Yes, it was. So what, uh, what caused you to you know, get serious about swimming? Well, Rockhampton's got um, two Olympic pools, North Rocky and South Rocky, funny enough. And Another at the side south, of the river? Yes, both sides of the river, you're right. You like those rivers. And so um, I can't remember a time, Wayne, that I wasn't at the pool. Wednesday night, Rocky Eminent night, I got two older brothers and an older sister and a younger sister, so I'm number four or five. And mum and dad, dad was a really good swimmer for Brisbane, grandma, Dolby boy. And so um, it was kind of in our DNA. And we went to uh, Wednesday night, club night, ever since I could possibly swim the 10 metres, 20 metres, 30 metres, 50 metres. And we would have this... um, 50 metres, the Blue Ribbon event, every Wednesday night. And we had a lot of cowboys that would come to town, miners would come to town, real men. And I set my sights on being the fastest in the in the club, lane eight, 
on Wednesday night against the men. And I got there when I was around about 13, 12 or 13. And, uh, and I was always, from then on, very good at setting goals. But uh, the 1980 Olympic Games happened in Moscow. Trudy Hausman and uh, Tracy Wickham came up to the Rocky Amateur Wednesday night and they were wearing their Olympic tracksuits. And I was just looking at a going, I want one. I want one. They were so gracious. They were so giving to the kids there and these tracksuits. And so I've always been a gear man. If you give me a T-shirt, I'll do anything for you. I, I just love getting selected for something and wearing the uniform. And so for me, it was all about the crest on your chest with the Olympic rings, uh, the waddle of the kangaroo and the emu, Australia. So for me, it was all about, you know, my heart touching that crest as many times as I could get selected as possible. I saw Steve Holland swim the 1500 metres in grade three at Allenstown State School on Dawson Road. The entire school went down to the library. He was going to be the Kathy Freeman moment from Sydney in 1976. He was our only really big chance. Montreal was a terrible games for Australia and the AIS was built because of it, um, only in results. And there's a lot of good athletes who went to 1976. And, um, and Steve swam. The whole, the whole school was there to see him in a black and white TV in the library. It was such an amazing, exciting feeling. I didn't understand what it was. Norman May was the commentator. Mm. So Nugget is like in there, 30 laps worth, no ads. And it's just Steve up against these two Americans. They beat him into third place. And so it was a real disappointment. But it, there was so much excitement. And I didn't know how I was ever going to get Norman May to commentate on me. But I set a goal that day as well. I didn't know what goal setting was. But I had this dream. And that's what lit the fire. And then seeing those uniforms four years later uh, at, 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 at our club night, my dad got a transfer in the bank when I was 14 years of age, sought out Laurie Lawrence at Chandler Pool. And the next nine years was with Laurie. And the next 35 years I've had in therapy. I was going to say, you must have been a masochist <laughs> agreeing to that. Because well, Laurie, is, Laurie is a coach like, well, I was oh, going to say yeah. like no other, but I think Dean Boxall's showing signs that he's uh, following in his footsteps. He's the, he's the new breed, isn't mm. he? And, uh, but these, these coaches come once in a generation. Sort of like the Wayne Bennetts and the Craig Bellamy's and things like that. Um, and he was our coach for our era. Yeah. Along joined Joe King and Bill Sweetenham and um, Dennis Pursley. And they were, they, they were hard men who, with not a lot of pity for a sport that didn't get a lot of recognition except every four years or two years for the Commonwealth Games. And they just knew how to produce those dreams into reality. And it was the most brutal, toughest, most antagonistic squad in the country. There were 75 swimmers every morning at 5, every afternoon at 3.30. There was no quarter asked, no quarter given, take no prisoners. But it was the environment of champions. Mm. And that's what I wanted. And that's what I, I wanted to be somebody in the Laurie Lawrence squad. And if you could do that, you were going to be a world beater. Well, let's face it. I mean, you had... Uh John O'Sieben there, the 1984 200-meter freestyle, 200-meter mm. uh, butterfly gold mm. medalist. 17 you had years Justin, of age. Justin Lindbergh, who was bronze the bronze medalist, medalist in the 400. Uh, so you had Glenn, Glenn Buchanan. Oh, yeah, um, lots and lots of swimmers. Yeah, and so you had this incredible blend of um, belief. Yeah. So you had a belief that if we do the laps, there is going to be selection. And if you get into the Australian team and the Laurie Lawrence swim team, you've got a good chance of winning something. Mm. And so it, it was a done deal. And we had our squad set up, you know, zero to five. And you could only get lane five if you're competing for your country. There was about 15 swimmers in there. Like you had the Neil Brookses and the Greg Fasalas and the Michael Bowles and, and the Ian Finlays and the Glenn Buchanans and Jono and Justin and uh, Susie Bomer and uh, Gillian Collingwood and, you know, on and on and on. And they're all going, you know, so everybody you read in the paper or saw on the TV um, are in there. Yeah. And so, you know, you had this track of advancement that if you're strong enough, tough enough and can improve – you're going to make lane five one day. And, it's, it's, you know, lane five was like the field of dreams. When did you 
have that belief? Was it when you touched the wall or was there a moment throughout that training cycle where you went, I can really do this? I know you talked about going into the the village and you weren't at your best Mm. and Laurie Lawrence was saying you, you know, you weren't doing as well as you were actually doing. Did you just know in your heart that you were... Well, I've always had a healthy ego. Very, very healthy. Oh, that's a shock. <laughs> so when I won the 86 Commonwealth Games about 18 months out from the Olympic Games, it was in a slower time than, than I'd need to go. And Laurie looked at me, and I was feeling pretty good. I was 18 years of age. I had highlights in my hair. I thought I was pretty special. And um, he looked at me, and, and just as we're sitting around, like, slapping each other on the back because we're Commonwealth champs, he said, uh, great time. You've beaten your best time by four seconds. Good drop. Do you think it's going to win in 18 months' time when we get to Seoul, Seoul? And I said, oh, no, no, no. This is no way. You know, there was Selnikov. There was all these sort of guys who were swimming so much faster. And I said, no, no, no. And he goes, great. I'll see you here at 5 o'clock in the morning. We'll start our journey. And then, you know, then I went across the road to the pub, came back at 5 a.m., and uh, we started an 8K session that morning on the road to Seoul in 1988. So that was the mindset that we always had to get better. We've always had a challenger mindset. We're always up against guys who are bigger, taller, stronger, better scrapbooks, more races behind them. We're always going to come from a short and sort of like challenger mindset because that's what my body was. We never got confused in, in terms of what my body was and we never tried to swim in everybody's lane of what they were. So we had this real good, really good disconnect and base about who we were, who and what we were and how we're going to race these guys to our assets. And that meant that I had to train really, really, I had to train. So buried myself in work for two years, barely won a race. I had friends who were sort of asking me if I was ever going to go to trials for the Olympic Games. I'd been training so hard and I'd race so poorly because I had no sort of quality in there. It was just basically getting ready for this one particular race. And so I went to trials, won, won the four and the 200 of trials, first race I've won in about 18 months. Went into Seoul Olympics and then my time started to drop and drop heavily. So I went from basically someone who was probably top 50 in the world to someone who's going to mix it up. And then we had to hold our nerve. We couldn't flinch because we've done this mountain of work. The four-year clock is about to stop. The pressure was arriving with all that investment, all that hard work. I'd failed at school. I didn't have a a career to go to. I didn't have a degree to go to. This was it. This was the shot. I had an awful plan B of going back to high school as as a 21-year-old that I couldn't even look at, okay? But that was going to be plan B, and it sucked. So um, I I was desperate. So with this desperation, inspiration, we've come into the meet. I'd had a longer taper than I'd ever had. We were feeling really good, and then my times just dropped out. And so I was doing push 100 metres in a test set and doing my PB mm. off a start on a full shave, and this is just a push. So we are doing these, and everything was happening, and then we, we just had to stare it down. We couldn't flinch. And I was, I was getting so tunnel vision, you know, and Seoul was – an exotic place. We got there 10 days early. We were staying in the village. Everyone was going down and shopping before the American horde arrived and ruined all the shopping. Um, I never left my room. I went to the food hall, to the pool and back to my room for 10 days straight. I was just so focused. I wouldn't walk down any two sets of stairs in case it gave me sore legs. I was so absolutely ready to go. And I'd done these special things by myself in the dark. I'd, I'd, I'd done these things called wheels that I discovered that Randy Reese in the Florida program, the University of Florida Gator program was doing. And what you do is you put a skateboard across your knees, you get into a push-up position, and then you walk your arms up the hill. And it's a perfect swimming stroke. It's a perfect freestyle stroke. There's a catch at the top. There's a push at the bottom. And, you know, I did them for 
12 months by myself out the front of my place with my old man. No one did that. So I knew that I had a couple of six shooters in my pocket that nobody knew. So I was a little bit like I'm ready to unveil, mm-hmm. unveil and ready to go. And there was three world record holders in the race. They were all faster than me. But my, my heat time had sort of dropped another two seconds and I did it easy. So I knew I had another gear. And then all I had to do was race beyond our way. He was going to front run out of lane number five. I was going to drag off him, use him as a yardstick, get in the trough of water beside him. And then when I'm finished with him, because he was using it at a long sprint, he was going to die. I was using it at a short distance. I was going to get faster. And that's how we planned it. But it really came down to the first six strokes. We broke it all the way down, how everybody swam. And Beyondi was going to be it. So if we could beat Beyondi, we'll beat the rest because he was going to win it. Um, so I really had to dive in. And because he had that blistering 100-meter sp- speed, that first lap was our most trouble. So I had to dive in, get in, do my first six strokes like I'm doing a 50 sprint just to get in the trough. And from there, if I take my first breath and I can see his togs, we've actually traversed the most difficult part of the race in the first six laps. That's what it came down to. After four years of trading, it sucked. And so anyway, I dived in came up my first breath and I could see his togs so we'd actually got across that gap and then from there on and we just couldn't flinch stuck to our game plan and then he started to fail coming into the third turn like we knew he would we got into his shoulder I hit the third turn best turn of my life turned around had a Swede out in lane eight who was doing really well but who swims in Sweden like really (laughs) hello so I knew I was going to beat him got him at 25 put my head down with 12 had 10 strokes to the wall Touch with my right hand, all those superstars, three world record holders on my left, touch with my right hand, had a quick look, and the water was still smooth. No one was there but me. Duncan Armstrong, again. 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 Lucky lane six. Lucky lane six. We beat three world record holders. My life changed forever, just like that. Four-year clock, took advantage of it, and won. So it was a good story. The gold medalist, Olympic champion... Representing Australia, Duncan Armstrong. So you had, because um, Laurie had done a bit of sneaky homework, had he not? Mm. Uh, in fact, he tells the story that he um, he basically went down to the officials' room and they'd all gone to lunch between heats <laughs> and finals. He broke in, yeah. got out the layer, got out the the tape of Matt Biondi's heat swim. Worked out where the bow wave or the um, mm. the wake would um, would be strongest, mm. and that's where he told you to swim. So you were drafting off him, weren't you? Yeah. See, in the eighties, because we didn't have lane ropes that could hold a wave, and you get eight big baboons in the water, and there's a meter trough, or mm. sorry, a foot trough, mm. rolling in behind us, and it's going all the way over the lane. So someone like Matt Beyond has to make a decision. One of the lanes is going to get this advantage off him because he's got blistering speed. He's the world record holder in the one hundred freestyle. He's going to move that first lap really, really fast, mm. and there's going to be an advantage. Now, being 48th of the world next to him in this lane, on the other side of him in lane number four is a world record holder. Yeah. So he's coming outside. We know it. He knows it. Everybody gets it. Yeah. You had to swim to these conditions. The lane ropes today are almost like 30 to 40 centimetres across. Yeah. They, so they hold any way from any size swimmer. So everybody gets it. No one gets an no advantage. Gets, yeah. So you had to swim to the conditions. Now, we had, in our squad getting ready for the Olympics, we had guys like uh, Neil Brooks and Greg Fasala and Michael Delaney and, and uh, Mark Stockwell. And Laurie would get, them, get all these big monsters in the diving pool and we would just practice swimming on the wave, practice again and again and again and again. And these guys were just – and we're trying to get you – know, tactically, we're trying to get into that wave because 
it'll float your bottom up. Once your bottom's up, see, swimming is all about a planing game. The higher in the water you are, the faster that you are. And that's where you used to see Thorpey dive in and just almost levitate up on top of the water and take off like a hydrofoil mm. because he had that strength to get on top of the water that much. They actually told me, um, the, the sports scientists, that Thorpey was so big and so heavy that he, he actually generated his own bow wave. Mm. So he was creating this wave, but then he was powerful enough to catch it. Mm. He was catching his own wave. Yeah, so, he had, so his displacement over the water was matched by his power to do it. Okay, so it's power-to-weight ratio through a, a body of water. And this is what the big boys do, and that's what Beyondi was always going to do. So he's coming over my side, Mr. 48th in the world, and he's never heard of me. Yeah. So he's, we know it, he knows it. Now we have to be good enough not to flinch because the first half of the race, he's going to take me out so fast, I'm redlining. Mm. I'm redlining in speed and burning energy that I might not have down the back end, but we did because mm. we did the work. I remember... Uh your, your race, incidentally, was the very first swimming race I ever covered. Oh, really? At eight Olympics. Um, so <laughs> Interesting. So world you started rec- with a good World one, record mate. gold medal, mm. and I'm thinking, oh, this is pretty good. Um, yeah, everything's and I, like this. You may remember that uh, after the race, all the, the races in Seoul were held sort of in the evening, mm. so um, it was getting past my deadline. Mm. So you might recall when, you, when they took you away to the swim-down pool before the presentation, you were off limits, but... Mm. I sort of bluffed my way past the guards. You lied. Yeah, I got in there. <laughs> you lied. And <laughs> hey, those little koala pins will get you anyway. <laughs> but I, I'll never forget that night, and, and I'll never forget Laurie. I mean, you mm. must have got a, as much amusement watching Laurie after that race as you actually did swimming it. Everyone got a taste of what we'd been putting up with for about five years. Mm. That Laurie would throw one of those fits at five o'clock in the morning if you do your warm-up too slow. And so finally the world got to see what we were putting up with. So for me it was a, a huge sense of amusement because everybody is wigging out. Yeah. Everybody is like, what is wrong with this guy? Like a security guard grabbed him, yeah. cuffed him, threw him out of the pool, uncuffed him, didn't take his accreditation off him. Mm. Laurie's run around the whole pool and come straight back in yeah. and gone downstairs where there was no security guards yeah. and continued his fit, yeah. right? So Laurie's having this huge outpouring because his investment is just as much as mine. He's mm. been away from his you know, growing family. He's running businesses on the side. He's not getting paid by us. You know, there's a real gap in the, in the coaching income market. So he's frothing at the mouth. And he's gone and got 200 kids from out of the stands to be able to say in English, go Duncan Armstrong. Yeah. So he's like, you know, created a renter crowd He's given it to the Americans up in the stands, and he's he's been arrested. He's frothing at them out. He's jumped in the pool, and then what was happening back home was we'd had an election. Bob Hawke is in, and Senator Graham Richardson has been made the sports minister, mm-hmm. and he's had the job for three weeks. Right? He flies in because it's first day of competition at the Olympic Games. He flies in. They take him out of the pool. They rush him out of the pool, saying an Australian has won something. Mm. Get him out there because in 1988, like 1984, gold medals were rare. We only won three that year for the whole team, mm. right? So we've won one on day one of competition. They race poor old Graham out there and, you know, he's got his entourage around him. They shuffle him into the pool and then they grab Laurie. Laurie, guess who's here, right? Laurie turns around and goes, you, you bastards. You've done nothing for us. We've asked you for money and here you are trying to get some of our glory and you can, you know, wow. basically he's giving him an absolute godful. So there's Graham sitting there going, this is, oh, 
<laughs> and every time I've seen Grant ever, ever since he's gone, mate, I'll never forget the blistering blast I got off Laurie. Yeah. He said he was spitting so much he gave me a suntan, right? <laughs> and away Laurie went. You know, so it didn't go so well for some people at the pool that night. But um, but that's what Laurie was. And to answer your question, I, I found it very amusing, completely in character. Well, probably not uh, not as amusing as what he did to you in 1986 when you had your first swim for Australia up in the Edinburgh Commonwealth mm-hmm. Games. Uh, oh. Tell us about your 400 race up there. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, it was my first international, big international meet and uh, you're standing in the tunnel and everything's going well for you and you're doing your yoga breathing to make sure your adrenaline doesn't tap too much. I was in lane four, swam well, did the best time to get in lane four. There wasn't any real superstar in there. Justin Lindbergh was injured, so he, the real gun in the Commonwealth in the 400 freestyle. So Kevin was, Boyd was your main rival, Yeah, Kevin he? Boyd was a nobody like me. Yeah. So it was great. And uh, Laurie comes up and he's got face paint on and a green and gold kilt and the green and gold uh, <laughs> golf Braveheart. cap. And, you know, he's just like, look, he's just carrying on and – and he runs down at the end of the pool and he goes, mate, I'm going to get him on your side. You concentrate on swimming and get him on your side. Off you go. And just as he says that, you know, the PA guy goes, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the pool deck. The men of the 400 meters freestyle final of the 13th Commonwealth Games. And out into the light you walk and you hit the light and there's about 13,000 people there and you're one big goose bump and you can't feel the track set on your back and it's all happening. You, you're still doing your breathing to calm down and you're moving around to the end of the pool and up the other end of the pool, this voice starts screeching like someone's being stabbed. He starts screeching like, let the animal out of the cage. Look out for lane four. He's hungry for blood. He'll rip your ears off. Don't go. Take your handcuffs off, boy. You can't swim in a cage. Let him out. You know, all this, all this stuff. And on and on and on he goes. And 13,000 people now look at me. And I'm sitting there going, how's this helping? <laughs> and they're doing the latest assignments. That's some loser from New Zealand lane one and... Someone from Canada Lane 2. And then this is your moment. Like I said before, i got highlights in my hair. I'm ready to go. I'm going to be on TV first time. And uh, my adrenaline comes up a little bit more. And Laurie skips around behind me. And he goes, mate, when you get up, show him you're here for gold. Stuff the silver. Gold. And when he said the second gold, my adrenaline goes, snap, I'm on. And they go, Lane 4, fastest qualifier for the final tonight from Brisbane, Australia. Duck it up, trying to jump up. And I stick my finger up in the air and I'm just like holding it and snarling at everybody. And I sit down. Now, that was my first Olympic team. And I look, I say, Commonwealth Games team. And I look over the Aussie team. There's 45 big team. They're all sitting in the sand going, Oh, rookie, what have you done? Well, you must have felt uh, pretty silly when Kevin Boyd opened up a 25 metre lead on you. No, I wasn't concentrating on Laurie at that stage, mate. Okay. And I was moving away from the shame and the guilt that I felt by sticking <laughs> my finger in the air. But uh, he he got out to a long lead and he was under world record pace. So he was almost 20 metres in front of us in the yeah. final freestyle. So I'm coming into the wall yeah. and mate, he, I'm under the flags and he's already out. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there going, this is not good. But I just stuck to my guns and, again, I was a, a very, very fast finisher in the back and my stroke rating was always as fast as it was first lap to eight, lap eight. So, like, I really understood the game and he fell into this enormous hole and I grabbed him with 25 to go and I beat him by six or seven yeah. metres. So it was, it was a really kind of freaky race and, and if I'd lost it or given up because he was so far in front and didn't stick to what I'd actually trained for, it would have been terrible. But I had a moment coming down with 100 to go, right? And all the team is right there on the turn. So last stroke into the turn, my head comes up and I look at the team and they're already looking at their programs to see who's next. They've already <laughs> given up on me. Like a couple of my teammates who really knew how hard I trained were not even looking 
And I remember looking around going, yeah, thanks. For thanks, fellas. <laughs> I remember standing next to Terry Buck during that race. Oh, yeah, Terry. And uh, he said, the grand piano is going to have to fall on this guy for him to lose. <laughs> and dad out of the sky oh, came. No. The whole shop of them had, to, had the land heels going. So good. But uh, there was a magical moment in that race when I passed him. We breathed at the same time. I looked at him and he looked at me. He was going in that way, and I was going towards the wall, which was good. Mm. And I remember just looking at him going, oh, there's a moment, and I won't forget it. So swimming has always thrown up these moments for me, which I'm very grateful for because you can have your medals and your, mm. and your world records and these incredible things, but um, being in the cauldron and having these moments that are all yours, that you own forever, mm. um, is, is really one of the greatest things about a sporting career, I think. Talk us through that um, Olympic journey because mm. – um, I think a lot of people, not have, having not been to the Olympics, um, a lot of our listeners um, might not know what that feeling is. I know you described, you know, getting your accreditation mm. and then, you know, seeing the Olympic pool and also with that comes the pressure, you mm. know, you're adding the pressure, the pressure, it's the pressure cooker. I remember a really um, well-renowned Australian coach saying that times don't win Olympics, people mm. do. Mm. So talk about how that pressure or how that performance um, came together to, I guess... I like that Olympic. I like that saying. I like that it's saying about people, isn't it? Because the Olympic Games is about endeavour, human mm. endeavour, under unbelievable circumstances. And that's why I think we're a little bit addicted to the human story of the Olympic Games. Mm. I know I've always been. I I would read anything about any Olympian all the time. You know, the funny thing about Bruce Jenner was that Laurie got his hands on, he went to America one time for a coaches conference and he got all these in, you know, back in the day where you had the reel of, of film that you'd stick in a, you know, a ticker mm. and you watch it. And we got Bruce Jenner's films uh, before videotapes came out. So we, we dined out on Bruce's career. You're such an incredible athlete. Mm. Um, and the way he spoke so directly about the training, about mm. doing the work. And um, so it was, it was quite, you know, disrupting when um, Bruce became Caitlin. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I wasn't tracking it. You know, and then all of a sudden, I came home to my missus after the Vanity Fair, uh, where Bruce Caitlin is on the cover, and and I've come home to my missus and I've gone, "Who is this Caitlin person?" And and she didn't know my journey with Bruce, right? So she just said, "Oh, it's some athlete named Bruce Jenner," and my world stopped because we were back in back in the film in the in the gym watching it, and I and my and I couldn't, and I I still find it difficult as you can tell, but. But Laurie really introduces to so many Olympic stories. And my Olympic journey, to answer your question, Fran, is about um, I've always wanted to be an Olympic story. So I've always had this massive fantasy file and a wonderful imagination in terms of um, what type of people go to the Olympic Games. And they must be perfect and they must be so happy. Their life must be awesome, right? And then the Bud Greenspan films, the Olympic Minutes, mm. The 16 Days of Glory, Numero Uno. Um, I was asked just before the Sydney Olympic Games to come along and talk to the ethnic press, as they call themselves in those days. And so I got up and I and I was trying to find a bridge where me as a swimmer talks to the ethnic press and says, and, and try to convey how important it is. So I, I told my story about how on a black and white TV growing up in Rockhampton on a Sunday morning was Numero Uno, which were 10-minute, video stories done by Bud Greenspan, the Olympic documentary. Had a great voice. Exactly. Mm. His brother basically voiced it and that commentator uh, and that voice basically lit all this imagination like Lassie Viren, Emil Zetepec, um and all these others. So instead of sort of like, hey, I'm Duncan Armstrong and I just told these stories that I learnt when I was 
five, six, seven, and eight mm-hmm. living in Rockhampton. And I've got up and I did the voice. I said, you know, the Lassie Viren story, you know, where it goes coming around the final turn. Lassie Viren is going to run into mid, you know. <laughs> you get goosebumps already, <laughs> yeah. don't you? But yeah. the timing of it was just so yeah. weird. Yeah. You know, like because that's a coming around the final turn, Lassie Viren is 14 minutes in front. And then the, the commentary would just go like this. And the pitchers would do it. Yeah. He, Lassie Viren runs across the line and into mid, uh, middle distance immortality. Blah, 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 blah. Mm. You know, or Emil Zetepec going mm. in the marathon for some to do. And all this sort of stuff. And then we had our own heroes like Herb and mm. Dawn mm. And, and, and those stories. So, like, I've always had a really, really good imagination which made the hard work make sense. Because without the hard work that they talked about, I wasn't going to have these moments. So did and you I play any of those – those mm. memories back as you were swimming, as you were, you know, as you were going, you know, head to head with time. Matt Biondi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you as you came up alongside, I'd love to know this because I I, I saw Ariane Titmus do it to mm. um, to Katie Ledecky yeah. in in Guangzhou at the World Championships and again at the Olympics. But when she did it, I just going, I wonder what's going through her head because mm. I don't think it even dawned on her that having come up, come up alongside her that she wasn't going to go past her. Of course. Yeah. So what about you? Well, you? What you see in there, Wayne, is 10,000 hours. Yeah. See, I would be in the training pool, Chandler, whatever, lap number 150 of 200. And I look up and about three lanes over, there's an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old girl. And she's seven out. I'm 20 out. And my imagination starts. Mm. Coming into the final two. Mm. <laughs> Duncan Armstrong has got this to go. You know, uh, you know, And then you just – and she doesn't know she's in a race. Yeah. <laughs> You do that now, don't but, you? Yeah, the but, yeah, she's in a race for her life, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I pick up and I go, right? Yeah. And I get my head down with 15 out and I, my lungs almost explode, but I'm finishing, right? Yeah. And I either get or I don't. Now, I've done that 10,000 times by the time I get to Anders Holmes with 25 to go. Yeah. And I don't know whether mm. three superstars are on my left. I don't give a shit. Yeah. Anders is my guy. Yeah. And I've done this with an 8-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old um, uh Guys who are better than me, guys who weren't better. Who cares? I've done it with Laurie walking down the pool towards the end of the pool. Yeah. Get him, mm. get him, get him, get him. You know. And so it's a chant. Mm. For me, it was always noises. Coming into the turn, it's just like, hit it, <coughs> hit it, <coughs> hit it. <coughs> and 10,000 uh, times. That the 400 in Seoul, you're up against Dewey Dassler, he, was, he led by a fair, a fair swag at the, uh, yeah. at the 300 mark. Yep. And you actually finished half a second stronger than 55.02 you did in the last – Last hundred meters. Yeah, I blew it. And he he did fifty five five nine, but he still beat you by point two of a second or something. Yeah, no, I made a mistake. I should made... you have gone earlier? Should you? No, 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 no. Um, it was three days after the two hundred, mm. and I'd swum so poorly in the heats because I just couldn't calm down after the two hundred. My adrenaline was still sort of bubbling away at a level that I couldn't calm down. Couldn't sleep until three in the morning. We knew it. We knew we were up against it. It's fine. So I made late one. Scraped into the final. But, man, I had so much juice because I'm, uh, I'm five seconds faster over the half distance. So I'm 10 seconds faster, basically. Mm-hmm. Basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is really exciting, right? So we're trying to tap into that. But I still didn't have the courage to go out faster. So I'm still back sort of like where my old time was mm-hmm. three days Just previously. Just ending a race. But I still had enough to win that. And I've come into the last 25 and I've rounded up the world record holder who was in lane four, Arthur Wodat. Mm. And Bobby Dazzler is on just on the other side. He's in lane six. Mm. And I couldn't see him. But what 
what I did by rounding up with 25 to go, I had the feeling I was winning again mm. before I actually won. Mm. And so I had this flush of emotion come over me. And instead of putting my head down from 10 out like I did in the 200, I swam into the wall really strongly, but it wasn't deadly. Yeah. So mm. I, and, I st- and I still had left some left in the tank. So this is the big regret. Mm. I broke the world record, but I had some guy that I didn't notice over there finish better than me, even though I had it in me to beat that eight-year-old girl again. I didn't mm. go through the routine. I didn't do what I did for the 10,000 hours. I didn't find that mongrel in me mm. to sort of desperately get to the wall. I got to the wall in great shape. <laughs> Had you known For he second. was an East German, might that have... Oh, uh... I did not really mind me. You can't think like that. See, we were up against a 30-year drug regime. Yeah. Now, there were so many Australian women who were more affected yeah. than the men who had their careers completely snuffed out by these chemicals, okay? Now, we don't know what's going on for that individual in that in- individual country because if your mother and da- father are getting nine hours power because you can swim really fast or they get an apartment, yeah. Good luck there is so much pressure <laughs> and so many human stories mm-hmm. inside that whole mm-hmm. drug regime, right? Yeah. So, again, it's not blaming uh, Uvo Dazler uh, mm-hmm. for beating me, but I knew I was up against and anybody who raced any of the Russians and any of the East Germans knew you know, this could go sideways and you can't do anything about it, yeah, right? Yeah. But you can't focus on that. The moment you do a negative thought with the four-year clock on a race that takes two minutes, mm. you're screwed. Yeah. So there, there's no, no there's no even addressing it. I've got to do what my lane can do because if I get outside my lane, I'm swimming slower. Yeah. It's as easy as that. So mentally, you're very, very sharp and focused in, in one particular way. So, yeah, look, when I look back on it a long time afterwards, I would have loved to be the first Olympic athlete to swim the 200-400 and win the goal, mm. right? That was denied to me. Um, four years later, a Russian did it uh, with Yevgeny Kafelnikov in um, in Barcelona. So it's all good. But I had a little bit of history there that I regret not getting. Mm. Um, do I blame anybody? Absolutely not. Mm. So it's just it was just our era and what we're up against. Yeah. And would and I'd do it all again. Mm. Yeah. How much? Um I guess moving on, talking about the Olympics and, and transitioning out of a career as a swimmer, um, mm. I know you had your challenges. <laughs> Did I? And I guess um, Did I what? You, know, you didn't have social media. You didn't have all those mm. um, factors where, you know, swimmers now have to have to have followers. They have to have likes. They mm. have to have that kind of thing to create their image. Mm. Um, going back to the initial question, how was that transition sort of to becoming a commentator for you, obviously still in swimming, that was a nice, easy transition. But what would you say now to those swimmers um, who are headstrong looking at the sport and don't have that balance or don't have something else to lean on? Like what would you be your advice, I guess? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I'd say to the swimmers. Um, it, was a, it was a tricky transition. Um, I, I was very much over swimming. I was burnt out. Both mentally and emotionally, and and pretty, I was only twenty four, so physically I was pretty, pretty, yeah. probably pretty okay to go forward. But it's such a hard work mm. sport; you can't be half in. Um, I think today we've gone through an amazing evolution of finances and support and transitioning services and things like that. So I'm fascinated to see the swimmers coming out of the pool, and they seem a lot more complete. Um, swimming was the only thing we had. There was no school support. Like I remember um, Haley went to the same school as I did, Brisbane State High. And Brisbane State High was able to, in Haley's era, transition um, elite athletes into only coming to school for your subjects. And therefore that support and that freedom and that flexibility really added to um, pushing the age group of swimmers higher. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Haley came back and swam, I think, a little bit of open water as a Mm mum. And then we had Lisa as a mum. And then we had Glimmy swimming at 30 
and you know it, it, it's all gone on the right tra- trajectory. But then when you get the social engineering of um, social media in, involved and stuff like that, it becomes tricky again. And we see our rugby league players and our, and our cricketers get themselves in trouble and swimmers have their moments as well. Um, what I'm very happy about in swimming and what I observe from as an older person now is um, we've got an incredible amount of support if a swimmer is looking for it. And, and that goes for our coaches and our administrators and, and things like that. I'm, I'm really proud of the way swimming has gone about putting together a framework and apparatus that can be sought if, if you're in that frame of mind. Now, that's the big if, what type of person you are, um, whether you're going to go for that framework, whether you're going to learn your lessons and actually deploy them for the likes or not likes, mm. um, whether you're going to expose yourself. And a lot of, lot of ingredients go into that cake on who and what you are. Mm. Have you done well in swimming? Mm. Have you met your goals? Are, are you stuck in regret and emotions? Um, do you f- how do you feel about yourself? You know, what do you think about yourself in your career? Now, we all know that coming out of a swimming career of any sort of description, even at a state level, you're now a time manager. You're now a dedicated person. You're a goal setter. You're an achiever. You're all these things that corporations and business world need. Mm. Okay, so you're employable. Uh, there is a career there for you if you want to study. The study won't be as hard as your swimming career. It just, there's no study that is. Mm. Okay, so you've got this resilience and you've got this strength about mm. you if you want to tap it. Mm. Now, you can get distracted and go down a lot of dark paths, okay? I know I did with drugs and alcohol and, and you know, I almost got addicted to bad behavior mm. because I was so, what's going to replace my adrenaline rush? What's going to replace that pressure that you're talking about before, that unique pressure of a four-year clock or mm. a, an environment like Athens or an environment like Barcelona or Seoul or Sydney? So there's a lot of coming down from a very high mountain to get on with the rest of your life, and it can feel very second-rate. It can feel very empty. Now, what I said before is I think we've got a lot of things in place to help with the void and the emptiness and the second-rate life or getting into public life or getting into corporate life by helping people adjust from the heady, heady highs into what mostly being a mum is about being a dad is about working a, a normal career, being a journo. Like not even television was anywhere near um, what the Olympics was. Mm. So, yeah, we've got a ways to go. And the Olympics is such a high mm. that we've got a duty of care to our swim team um, as we go through. But th- like I said before, I believe swimming has gone through a very healthy evolution of finances, support, uh, age. So we're all now into our late 20s when we want to give it away or 30s when we want to give it away. Mm. And so you're, you're dealing with a, an, a more mature person, mostly. Mm. I mean, you, yeah. you you look at uh, Kate Campbell, she'll be, well, she's talking about going uh, through to uh, Paris next year. I hope she does. Uh, I do too. Mm. Um, but I think she'd be, what, 32, 33. Mm. Now, in 2000, you actually made a comeback. Um, oh, I did. Yeah, yeah. Did. Um, yeah, I did. 1998. And it uh, didn't last all that long. No, I didn't need to. So that was a personal journey because um, I was in commentary. Thorpey hadn't arrived yet. So mm. the 97. Um, <laughs> my time is still sort of competitive. And um, I was becoming a bitter person because I was sitting there going, they can't even beat my time. Yeah. You know, so I got into this real tall poppy mindset, uh, Australian mindset with, and it was, it was actually turning me into a bitter person. Mm. And so 
finally someone says, well, why don't you have a swim and shut up? Put up a shut up. Yeah. Mm. So I got into some training and I had Leo Young as a coach and he was a rowing um, specialist. So he, he brought in a lot of good ideas. And so I wasn't going back to the Laurie Lawrence sort of style of training. Yeah. I was trying to meet my age at 28 um, or yeah, around about that. Mm. Um, I was trying to meet my age and do something different. And I had, a, I had about eight months of swimming and it was all going really great. My body was feeling good. I was actually, my, my times were dropping. And then I went in a World Cup race and, and Kieran was just starting his journey back into the Sydney Olympic Games. So you had Duncan, Kieran, and a couple other guys in the first heat of the time of freestyle. <laughs> and these young yeah. blokes are looking at us going, what's going on here? Anyway, so I swam this race. I swam pretty good time. I think it was about a 151 and a half. And, and I swam over to the side of the pool and the voice had stopped. Mm. And I've looked up the, and, I, and I was just calm again. And so it almost drained out of me, this okay, need to sort of yeah. go and perform again. And I walked over to Leo and Leo sort of looked at me and gone, hmm. uh, I think we're done here. Mm. And I think, I think we're right. I think we are, mate. Yeah. And we had to like, we, we kind of had a little bit of soul searching to do around that. It wasn't that moment yeah. of clarity. But um, there was something very much in that. And then I was just calm again. And this thing had dropped off my shoulders. So this mm. burden of sort of, am I any good? Or should I have kept going? Or regrets of getting out of 24? Or maybe I got out too early? And all these sort of things, these second guessing went away and and I retired happily. I think you uh, you timed your run perfectly yeah. because I remember oh, as as 1997 I was up in uh, Fukuoka hmm. for Pan Packs and uh, 400 meter freestyle and uh, Grant Hackett at the age of 17 has won hmm. and all anyone was talking about was what about this 15 year old kid who came second? <laughs> yeah. So Ian Thorpe has just come out yeah. of nowhere so yeah. Thorpe's just uh, yeah. Grant has just won his first international race, and already he's a hunted man. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, I think you, I think you got out at perfect time. Yeah, it's all about timings, Wayne. You're right, mate. <laughs> Clarity and timings. I, I, I had this favourite line because as a 200 metres freestyle, when Thorpe really started to crack it, um, they would look at me and go, "What would you have done in your heyday if you had to race here now?" I said, "Switch to breaststroke," <laughs> and then he started swimming <laughs> <to> breaststroke. <laughs> That's the only opening I'll go for. So, so but an amazing athlete. Like, yeah. you know, to commentate him was some of the best times I've ever had mm. because we would get to yeah. the pool and I was sitting next to an absolute legend like Ray Warren, uh, with Nicole. And so the commentary team really loved each other and we, we were really there and, and Ray was it was such a departure from rugby league and such a benign he would say, Geez, I love this swimming. It's, it's such a benign <laughs> sport. You know, they gotta get in their lane, they're not allowed out of their lane, they don't change lanes, they don't run across the other end of the <laughs> end of the park. I can't see them. You know, and he goes, They're right in front of me and they're all nice people. You know, and he, he just loved it that way. This is what Sydney? Yeah. Sydney oh, for everything. Like yeah. we did from nineteen ninety seven, ninety eight we did the 98 Commonwealth Games together and, and away we went. And yeah. we went all the way through to Beijing. Yeah. And it was it was incredible. Mm. And it was a really great time. We had Commonwealth Games, World Championships in 07, Commonwealth Games in 06. We had uh, Fukuoka, Yokohama. You know, so you go through these, these fantastic moments and the virtual line showed up and we were on straight after a current affair. Prime time. Mm-hmm. The only yeah. thing outrating yeah. us in sport was the state of origin three games. Yeah. Swimming the under the rest. <laughs> and we, but like Thorpe and Hackey yeah. had this support cast of yeah. Skippy and Susie and yeah. and Klimmy and, and Fides and it just went on and on and we had our own Olympics in that time. Yeah. Do you so, think we're we're coming to a new golden age? I'd like to think so. Yeah. I think I'd like to think that uh, with the coaching panels that we've got, the experience that we have 
2032 now on the horizon. I think we're going to find a lot of funding in our sport to have another golden age. And I think we're already there with the with the veterans who are going to be there in, in four or five years' time into LA to get mm. us prepped up for the last four-year four charge mm. into our own Olympic Games here on the Sunshine Coast and around southeast Queensland. So I think we are, Dwayne. I think, I think we've got all the skill and experience and now the excitement of the nine-year build-up in place to make swimming, you know, what it's going to be. And, and it's going to be another golden age because having been part of the last one, we've got all the ingredients to have another one. Mm. So it's exciting. Sure. How do you feel about swimming now? I don't swim at all. I'm still burnt out. Um, there's no mystery in it for me, Fran. Yeah. Um, I don't like it. So really. I really like watching it. I love swimmers doing their thing. Yeah. But I dive into the pool and I, I feel so stale and awful. After 30 metres. It's funny, 30 metres, yeah. I'm like, ooh, how good is this? And then, yeah. I, then you know, basically the reality shows up and you sink. Yeah. But um, no, I just, I just don't like it. I don't like it at all. Dawn Fraser and, and Susie O'Neill both refer to swimming as that's their special place. Lucky and they, ducks. And they don't, they don't feel comfortable anywhere else in the, in the world mm. as they feel comfortable in the water. Mm. Well, that doesn't, doesn't have that no, effect on you, I, huh? I find that in the weight room, Wayne. Okay. You know why? Mirrors. <laughs> Every gym has got these massive mirrors And I'm completely stuck on them So um, talking about your role on the board yeah. And the exciting times we have now Preparing for the sports that will be here on the Sunshine Coast Can you talk us through sort of your role and what you'll be doing? Well I'm Deputy Chair on 2032 uh, Sunshine Coast 2032 I'm beside such a dy- dy- dynamic leader like Roz Roz White is just all great things about the Sunshine Coast to work with her, her in this role is just an absolute privilege. And she'll be embarrassed by me saying that, but that's the truth. And so we have got a committees full of people like Roz who are so passionate for the Sunshine Coast. I'm a newbie. I've been up here about 14 months since the, with the family. We, we've come out of Brisbane after 18 years in Brisbane. And um, so we're getting to know the Sunshine Coast. And I, I'm so privileged because I get to spend time with this committee that's full of absolute champions, have been here so long and, and occupy so many parts of this dynamic lifestyle. And the Sunshine Coast, when we look at the, the uh, mission, we've got a chance here to represent the community to actually change the Olympic movement. Mm-hmm. Now, every time the Olympics comes to Australia, we change it. Mm-hmm. You know, in 1956, we had the greatest games ever at that stage, most participants from the most countries, still rebuilding. The world was still rebuilding after the uh, Second World War, and so was the Olympic movement. And we changed it. We called it the Friendly Games. We broke down the barriers on the um, closing ceremony, and it changed the games forever, okay, really brought into this human side of the games, the Friendly Games. Then in Sydney, you know, the Olympics came down here in tatters after – um, scandals in Salt Lake City and scandals with the bid processes, um, uh, a complete fail in Atlanta. You know, the coffers were empty and the brand was rusty. Mm. It was almost falling off the wall. Mm. Comes to Sydney, we had 2 million people on the park. The tickets were incredibly uh, wonderful. The new live sites around the city, the way that we took it all the way through Sydney and the surrounds, it came up to Queensland and down and right around the country with their soccer and basketball and other other sports, that we filled up their coffers full of gold, we repaired their their brand, we shined it up and we gave it back to them, and we changed it forever. We, ch- we showed the world what the games could be. Now we have our first regional bid, and the Sunshine Coast is a delivery partner in that. And with our unique lifestyle up here, we can actually change the games, and everybody who visits us using the Olympic Games as a tool, and we can say UNESCO, the environment, our view on carbon, um, 
our footprint of the games, the way we approach it, all our free events from the marathons to the walks. You know, we're going to have so many Sunshine Coasters at the games, watching events, seeing champions as they run down our streets or walk down our streets or triathlon or in our waters. So we've got this unique opportunity to present the games back to the Olympic movement and change it because we have a unique area. So that's a pretty big charge, isn't it? It's a pretty big mission, isn't it? So we want to spin, oh, it's going to be great when the game's here. No, no, no. the games are going to come here and we're going to change them. And that's going to be our charge because we are a different and unique region than anybody else who's delivered it in history. I love how you're taking that Olympic champion mindset to <laughs> now developing one of the best games in, yeah. in the world. So, yeah, um, we've got nine years to do it. And we've got so many great players in this committee who've, who've come from such vast and different backgrounds. And that lived experience of this region is going to make our community group really effective of initiating translating the message and getting people involved. Who actually, who actually got you involved? Did, or did you... Uh... Um, Ted O'Brien. Okay. Yeah, no, Ted and I, we basically did a couple of events together and, and he said, uh, as soon as he learnt that I was on the Sunshine Coast and Ted had this vision for this for this um, task force, which we called it in the early days. Um, and Sunshine Coast 2032 came out of Ted O'Brien's vision and he's... You know, he's up there leading the charge, trying to get heavy rail, trying to get light rail, um, trying to get the best experience for Sunshine Coasters and get infrastructure. And, you know, it works like this at the Olympic Games. The Olympic Games is the vision and the impetus to get infrastructure. Mm. You know, when we look at Athens, we go, what a disaster. Mm. We're only looking at Athens as a disaster from our sporting lens. Now, we are Mm. all sick for sport. Mm. We are Australian. Right, so when we look at that, we go, "Oh, it was such a fail." But they got an international airport. They got infrastructure throughout um, Europe because of it. They upgraded their port facilities, and those three things alone got them through the GFC, got them through going broke and becoming, you know, such a burden on the EU. And now they're thriving. Yeah. Now they're and those pieces of infrastructure are still working for that community of Greece mm. today. Mm. And yeah. so that's what it's all about. Sometimes we can get really, really sporty and narrow. And so what, I, what I'd like to do with the Sunshine Coast 2032 group and community group is to bring all their lived experience of all the different parts of this region mm. to bear and using the Olympic Games and the sporting event and the festival that it is as the impetus to make sure that we're open for as many people to come here as we can and to keep all that expertise in the region going forward as a legacy. Great way to finish up. Thank you so much for coming in, Duncan Armstrong. We look forward to hearing more about your stories as the years unfold. Thanks, Fran. It's a privilege. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Join us as we delve into the exciting world of the 2032 Olympic and Paralympic Games and the impact it will have on our Sunshine Coast region. Our mission is to bring together all relevant stakeholders through our six established committees, sport and recreation, business and tourism, community and volunteers, arts and culture, environment and sustainability, and infrastructure. We'll be identifying and communicating initiatives and activities that will benefit our region. So stay tuned for all the latest updates with a focus on connecting and encouraging partnerships. This is a podcast you won't want to miss.